wow, it's been an amazing service so far. I should probably just read the Bible and sit down <laughs> so, so I don't ruin anything. <laughs> but let's look into God's word together in Matthew 21. The initial passage that Daniel gave everyone last week was, only, uh, was verses 1 through 11. We're going to go a few more verses to, uh, to verse 17 this morning. So Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. If you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, you could find a Bible uh, in one of the chairs in front of you. And feel free, if you don't have a Bible of your own or if you don't have the translation, the ESV that we use here, feel free to take that as a, as a gift from us to you. As we enter this Holy Week, or Passion Week as it's also called, of 2022, we enter the remembrance of the most significant week in human history. The final days of Jesus' life leading up to his crucifixion, his burial and resurrection stand at the center of human history. In fact, all of human history, before human history began, before God created the, the world, this week was in his plan that he would send his son to save lost humanity from our sins. So when, you're, when you read through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all accounts of Jesus' life, those Gospels make uh, pretty, pretty quick movement throughout mo most of them, throughout those three years of Jesus' ministry. You're covering a lot of ground in a very short time. But when it comes to this final week of Jesus' life, everything slows down. The narrative slows down, the camera zooms in, and we're meant to take, take it all in, all that happened during this week. So it's very appropriate that week after, year after year, we take this holy week to remember what Jesus did for us in that week. My only hope, your only hope of eternal life and forgiveness of sins lies in what Jesus did for us in that week. So we cast our minds back to the beginning of that week, the Sunday of that week, Palm Sunday. As you can see the palms up here. Of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, that final week of his life, leading to his arrest, his sentencing of death by crucifixion, his three days in the grave, and then what we will celebrate next Sunday, his powerful resurrection from the dead. So Sunday of that week was not eventful. As we'll see, there is going to be this massive crowd causing a scene and shaking up the city of Jerusalem. Jesus will enter the temple the following day and start cleaning house. And all of these events here revolving around the one action of Jesus that we'll see in this passage by which he openly declared to all who had eyes to see that he is Israel's promised king. And that matters to every one of you. Because Jesus is no mere tribal king. Jesus is no mere national king of one country out in the Middle East. Jesus is the king of the world, of the universe, of every nation, as we'll see this morning. So every one of us has a king. Every one of us gives our highest allegiance to something or someone. And because of our sin, 
because of the sinful bent of our heart, we will give our, our highest allegiance to anything and anyone but Jesus. In our sin, we can't stand Jesus. In our sin, we recoil against his claims over our lives. Some of us fill our minds with what we believe are intellectual arguments to try to disprove the claims of Christ and Christianity, all the while knowing that we are seeking to disprove the most solid reality in the universe. So my call to every one of you today and the call of God's word for us is to bow down, to turn from your treason against this king. Lay down your weapons, lay down your sins, and swear your allegiance to King Jesus. And when you do, he will freely pardon all of your treason against him and welcome you into his good and life-giving rule. So let's look at Matthew's account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem in Matthew 21. The main point in this text, as we'll see, is that Jesus is king. And there are three things, three main points today that we see regarding the kingship of Jesus in, in these verses here. Jesus proclaims himself as king. All right, so Pastor Mike already read through these verses uh, to begin with, but just as a refresher, let's look again at verses 1 through 7. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them, sat on the cloaks, not the donkeys. I used to think when I was growing up that Jesus was sitting on both uh, as he was riding into town, which would make for an interesting sight. No, he sat, the them is the cloaks, not the donkeys. Just for clarification, that trips some people up. Matthew 21 begins with Jesus and his disciples traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem at the end of chapter 20. They are in Jericho. He is traveling southwest to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is packed at this time because you have pilgrims from all over Israel. You have Jews from other nations who had been spread abroad who are in Jerusalem at this time. And you even have some, some Greek God-fearers who are there for the celebration of the Passover. So Jerusalem at this time was probably five to six times its usual population, so it's bustling, it's bursting at the seams. The city is packed for the celebration of God's delivery of their nation from slavery in Egypt some 1,500 years before. And what an appropriate time for God to bring about a greater deliverance and a greater salvation. So before Jesus and his disciples arrive at Jerusalem, they travel to the village of Bethphage, which is just east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. 
And at Bethphage, Jesus turns to two of his disciples. We're not given their names. It, it may have been Peter and John. They were the ones who would later uh, be the ones who would prepare the Passover feast. We're not told who they are, but Jesus turns to them. He tells them to go into the village in front of them, maybe Bethany. We're not given the name for that village. But he tells them immediately on entering, they're going to find a donkey, mother donkey probably, and a colt, its child. So they are going to, he tells them, untie them and bring them both back to me. Now, if two men who weren't from a particular village just walked into the village, untied some donkeys, as people are standing around and turned around and left, there's probably going to be some questions, right? You don't just walk up to somebody's driveway and, uh, you know, open the door. Maybe the keys are, you know, under the seat. Pick it. Yeah. Turn on the car and leave. You just don't do that normally. So Jesus tells them, if anyone asks you what you're doing, tell them the Lord has need of them. So what's probably going on here is Jesus had prearranged the donkeys um, to, to be made available to him and the disciples immediately on entering the village. And so Matthew doesn't tell us uh, of the interaction, but Luke tells us that it was the owners of the donkeys who asked them, and the owners of the donkeys say, go ahead and use the donkeys. So Jesus sends for the donkeys. Uh, the disciples go and get them. They bring them back to Jesus. The disciples put their cloaks on the colt's back, and Jesus begins riding it into Jerusalem where crowds will come out and see him and surround him with praises. Now, what was Jesus intending to communicate by riding a donkey into Jerusalem? It's a small animal, but it's no small thing what Jesus was communicating. Jesus sends the, the donkey for the donkey because he was deliberately fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 which Matthew quotes in an abbreviated form. Here's what Zechariah 9.9 says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Daughter of Zion means inhabitants of Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Jesus deliberately sent for a donkey as an open declaration in disclosure of who he is. And who is he? Zechariah says, rejoice, Jerusalem, your king is coming to you. Here, Jesus is proclaiming, though not verbally, but visually, that he is Israel's king. He is the Messiah. So up, up to this point in Jesus's ministry, strange to some of us, but he's constantly telling people, don't tell others who I am. Like, why not? <laughs> you know, everybody should know, but Jesus is telling, don't tell others who I am. Keep it quiet. Because if Jesus began his ministry openly proclaiming, I'm the Messiah, I'm the King, what would happen? And this did happen once. They, they tried to take him by force, you know, to be the king. But Jesus would have nothing of that because his kingdom was not of this world. His kingdom was not the kind of king kingdom that most were looking forward to. But now Jesus, knowing what he's about to do this week, this was his time to reveal himself as Israel's king. 
But the secrecy is being lifted. And Jesus is declaring to Jerusalem, I am your king. But what kind of king was Jesus? What kind of king did the Old Testament promise that God would send to his people? Matthew and Zechariah tell us in, in these verses. They, they reveal three aspects of the nature of Jesus' king, kingship. First, he was a humble king. Matthew, along with his quote from Zechariah 9.9, tells us that Jesus was a humble king. He was humble and mounted on a donkey. The most remarkable thing about Jesus' first coming to this earth is that he came not in riches and grandeur, which were his for all of eternity before this time, but he came in poverty and humility. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 tell us, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a lowly animal. He's surrounded not by crowds of nobility and people of influence. He's surrounded by the common people. People like you and me. Nothings and nobodies, nothing to offer but our great need and our grateful praise. Jesus is above none of us. He is not out of reach for any of us. He is a humble God. He's a humble Savior. He's a humble King. Jesus is also a peaceful King. Jesus rides into Jerusalem not on a war horse, as you would expect for a great military king to ride into the capital city. He's riding on a donkey. In fact, Zechariah 9.10, the context of where Matthew is quoting from, contrasts Israel's coming king who's riding on a donkey with instruments of war that are listed here. Listen to the beginning of verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. Jesus came to bring peace to Israel and ultimately to all of the nations, but the most important peace that he could offer us is peace with God. And when you experience that peace, it inevitably leads to peace with others. Christianity does not conquer through military might and force, but by preaching peace with God through Christ, through faith in Christ. Those of us who have been given peace with God through Christ will be those who seek peace with others because Jesus came as a peaceful king. And one day, peace, the peace that Jesus brings, will literally fill the entire earth when the Prince of Peace returns. Jesus is a humble king, he's a peaceful king, and he's a universal king. By riding into Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, Jesus was doing more than proclaiming himself as Israel's king, but the king of the entire earth. Listen to the rest of Zechariah 9.10. 
says, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river, Euphrates River, to the ends of the earth. That's how far the kingdom of Jesus would expand to the ends of the earth. Jesus came to establish a global kingdom. As I said earlier, Jesus was no tribal king. He was indeed the king of Israel, but his kingdom would expand to all of the nations. Matthew, after all, ends his gospel in chapter 28 with Jesus saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. When Jesus has completed his work of salvation on this earth, and he returns and the dead in Christ are raised up, there will be not one nation or one tribe or one language where there are not people who praise and confess Jesus as their king. Revelation 7, 9 says that there will be a multitude so massive that no one can number. So in the end, how many people are going to be saved by King Jesus? The answer the Bible gives is you can't count that high. This is amazing. This is the triumph of the gospel in our world as the gospel goes out to the nations. In the end, there will be a multitude so large from every nation that Jesus has saved and is reigning as king that we will not be able to number it. He is a universal king. So for all who know Christ as Savior and King, how urgent and needful it is for us to take on the character of our King as citizens, as citizens in His kingdom. So Christ alone is King and sovereign, so we can't imitate Him in that, but we can imitate the nature of His kingship, living lives under His rule and that lives that reflect His character. So like Christ our King, we should be known for our humility. Like Christ, we move toward the lowly, the nothings and the nobodies. Like Christ, we make ourselves the servants of others. Like Christ, we bow down to wash dirty feet. Like Christ, we humbly follow the mission of God for our lives, no matter the cost. And like Christ our King, we should be known for our peace. The church should be the one place on earth where people can come to see the kind of peace that the world longs for but can never find apart from Christ. We will sin against each other, be sure, but we will forgive each other because we have been forgiven. Our personalities at times will clash with one another. But we will bear with one another, and in honor we will prefer one another because Jesus is our Prince of Peace. And knowing that Christ is the King of the nations, we will work and labor to carry out his command to make disciples of all the nations, starting with our own nation and starting with our own communities. We will financially and prayerfully support missionaries as they are going out to the nations with the gospel. Some of us will leave Genesee County 
and we'll set our feet on another continent for the rest of our lives for the sake of King Jesus and for the sake of his gospel. If the Holy Spirit is calling you to go, go. Find out how to go and then go. The nations need to hear about their King and Savior. So in verse 1 through 7, Jesus proclaims himself as king. And in verses 8 through 11, Jesus is praised as king. Let's look at verses 8 through 11 together. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches. We find in the other gospels, palm branches, spread them out on the road as well. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So as Jesus travels into Jerusalem, large crowds are surrounding him in front and behind. They begin spreading their cloaks on the ground. They begin spreading branches on the ground in front of him as a kind of royal carpet for the king to come into Jerusalem. And the crowds begin shouting pretty remarkable words for the crowds to be shouting. And they come from Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26, which says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Our Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house or the temple of the Lord. So in Psalm 118, God's people there, it's a psalm of thanksgiving for God's salvation. And God's people in Psalm 118 are calling on God for salvation and deliverance. Save us, we pray, O Lord. And they also bless he who comes in the name of the Lord, which means the one who would come as God's representative, setting forward God's purposes. So returning back to Matthew, Matthew records the crowd saying, Hosanna to the son of David. That word Hosanna is just a transliteration of the Hebrew, which means save, save, or salvation. Salvation to the son of David. Salvation belongs to the son of David. So it's a, it's a cry of salvation and deliverance. So they, they see Jesus as their king, and they see him as the one who would come bringing God's salvation. And as Pastor Mike made mention of earlier, there were all kinds of views of what the salvation that the Messiah would bring and all kinds of views of what the kingship of the Messiah would be like. And even though there were almost certainly misconceptions about that amongst the crowd, they saw the reality of what was happening here. They saw in Jesus the salvation of God. They saw in Jesus the king that God had promised to send them. He would be a king, and the salvation he would bring would not be one from an oppressive empire, but from sin and Satan and death. They also cried not just Hosanna, but Hosanna to the son of David, which is not include in, included in Psalm 118, the phrase the son of David. But who is the son of David? What are they talking about there? Well, remember how Matthew begins his gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, 
the son of David. God had promised that he was going to send a descendant of David to be the king of his people. And here he is. And the people recognize Jesus as the son of David that God had promised to send to them. And they praise him as such. So the result of all of this noise, all of this praise, all of this celebration, as they walk into the city, it says that the whole city was stirred up. And that word stirred up carries the meaning of to cause to be in a state of commotion. So the CSB and the NLT, if you use those translations, they both helpfully translate it. The city was in an uproar. That's what was happening here. The whole city is in an uproar about this man who's coming in to this great praise. And they begin to ask, who is this? And, and the crowds respond, this is the prophet, Jesus from Nazareth, possibly referring to the prophet that God had promised in Deuteronomy 18, 15, the prophet like Moses. And it says there, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So the crowds, even with certainly their limited knowledge of Jesus as king, praise Jesus as king. And as we're going to see, it, it infuriates the religious leaders in Jerusalem. But it was the most fitting and right response for a people to receive Jesus and celebrate Jesus as their king. So Faith Church, every, every Sunday we have the privilege and joy of celebrating Jesus as king. If, if every Sunday our church and the churches across our community, if only there would be such joy in the kingship of Jesus as there was in this crowd, what a witness that would be to the watching world, to those who are with us who don't yet know Christ, what a witness it would be. I hope the kingship of Jesus causes your heart to rejoice as it should, this, this, today we've been singing wonderful songs about Jesus' kingdom, kingdom and kingship, and I hope your heart's been soaring in these songs. Last week we also sang, all hail the power of Jesus' name. And I love that phrase in each of those verses, and the melody just soars, and it says, and crown him Lord of all. And crown him Lord of all. I just love belt, belting that out at the top of my lungs. It's just so wonderful to sing loud of Jesus as the Lord of all. He is king over all kings. He is Lord over all lords. He's Lord of the nations. He's Lord over this building. He's Lord over our community. He's Lord over it all. And that should cause our hearts to rejoice. Crowds weren't bored at the thought of Jesus' kingship, and neither should we. Jesus is worthy of more than mumbled praise. He's worthy of shouts of joy. And when we understand how truly glorious he is as our king, our hearts will not remain untouched, and our voices won't be able to remain quiet as we proclaim his praise. So Matthew continues on to the events. Uh, we find out in Matthew, these are the events of the next day on Monday of Holy Week where Jesus is, number three, rejected as king. 
in verses 12 through 17. Some are receiving, as we'll see in these verses, are receiving Jesus as king, but others are rejecting him as king. So, Jesus and the crowds have all already caused a massive disruption in Jerusalem on, on this week of the Passover celebration. And Matthew records next that Jesus then enters the temple. Look at verses 12 through 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and brought in the temple and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. All right, here's our Prince of Peace. <laughs> all right, this is, this is amazing. I love this. This is one of the most amazing stories in all of the New Testament, uh, to, to me at least. Matthew doesn't give this detail, but Jesus actually made a whip and, uh, as part of this. And he goes into the temple, which was a racket, which was a racket at this time. And he, he starts cleaning house. So Jesus, like the godly kings of the, in the Old Testament, was zealous for the right worship of God. So the temple, which was to be a house of worship, was now by all appearances, a marketplace. So you had the noise of money changers there, and those money changers, they would take people's uh, currency from wherever they were from and exchange it into the temple tax. There was all, the, all this money changing that was going on. People who didn't feel like bringing their, their sacrifices from all over the country and outside the country, you could buy your animals here in the temple complex. It was a racket in here. So me and Jess just... Went down to Florida. Uh, I hate airports. <laughs> they're terrible places to be. They're loud. They're bustling. So much noise. I mean, th this is, that's what this was like. It was a, as loud as a busy airport terminal. But the noise that should have been heard in the temple, instead of all of that, was the sound of God's people praying. And there was none of that to be heard. So Jesus responds with righteous and holy anger and literally drives these people out of the temple. He's going to have no, no place for that in, in the temple of his father. He literally flips over tables and chairs. I was explaining this to my son last night uh, and telling him this, and um, I should probably preface that. It's not okay for you to do that. <laughs> Maybe someday in, in, in a certain circumstance, but it's not good to encourage your two-year-old to start flipping over tables and chairs. Uh, but Jesus is right to do so because none of this should have been happening in the temple. And he was zealous for the house of God because as he says, quoting Isaiah 56, 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer. This is why we pray so much in our church services. The modern evangelical church tends to sprinkle 15, 30-second prayers here and there. Why? Well, often because we want to make sure we appeal to the crowds. And so we spend less time in prayer. Prayer is not an optional extra for God's people. 
in our worship. It's at the heart of what we do on Sunday mornings. If we all walked into church each Sunday morning with the words of Isaiah 56, 7 on our hearts, my house shall be called a house of prayer. How transformed our services would be and how transformed our hearts would be as we come already not just to be spectators, but prayers. It's one of the main works that we do on Sunday mornings is we come and we pray to God for God to do what only he is able to do. And Jesus was zealous for that in the temple of God, and Jesus is still zealous for that in his church. Now, it's, it's clear here that Jesus was not out to make friends <laughs> with the Jewish religious leaders, the priests and the scribes who were there. And, and these were the ones who just allowed all this racket to happen in the temple to begin with. And reading ahead in the Gospels after this, Jesus, for the next few days, he, he sets up shop in the temple. <laughs> and he's there, he's healing, he's teaching, all on the turf of the priests and the scribes. And they are furious because this was an absolute threat to their power. This was an absolute threat to their positions of authority, and Jesus would expose them for who they really are and and all of their hypocrisy. And the only solution that they could think of is that he had to be taken out. He had to be taken out. That, That couldn't happen yet, though. They were not about to arrest Jesus in broad daylight with all of the crowds. There would be a riot to be sure, and they weren't going to to risk that. So they would have to scheme together during this very uncomfortable and infuriating week for them of how they would get this man out of the temple and onto a cross. Well, Jesus would go on to make matters even worse, (laughs) okay? If it's not bad enough already. Okay, look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came into the temple, and he healed them. And the Jewish leaders are standing around while he's doing this. And he's giving blind men their sight. He's making the lame to stand up and walk. All of these are clear signs, as Jesus told John the Baptist earlier, that he was the Messiah. And and the, the priests and scribes are seeing this all play out in front of them. And then add to those healings, in verse 15, little children. The kids in the temple complex are loudly shouting what they heard mom and dad shouting earlier, Hosanna to the son of David, praising Jesus as king. And the priests and scribes says were indignant. They were furious. The blood was rushing into their faces. And they start shouting to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? About you? I love Jesus' response. Yes. Yes. I hear what they're saying. And instead of doing what the priests and scribes were expecting Jesus to do to their complaint, which would be to turn to the kids. Now, kids, that's enough. You're getting carried overboard. Let's be quiet. Let's not upset the religious leaders here. No. Okay, there's already a fire going on here. And Jesus takes out his 
gasoline can and begins pouring gas on the fire with what he says next. And he quotes to them and he asks them, have you ever read? <laughs> have you ever read your Bibles in, in Psalm 8 where it says that the children are praising God? God, that God has ordained praise from the mouths of children. So that passage is talking about children praising God. And Jesus applies it to himself. Okay, so the fire, the fire is erupted. It's burning. Jesus has already proclaimed himself to be king. Now he's claiming to be God. So that's to the priests and scribes, insurrection. That is blasphemy. And that's all they think they need now in order to have a case against Jesus to arrest him and to see him crucified. Instead of bowing to this king, though, and bowing to their God, they would crucify him. No one, not even God himself, would threaten their power. And it is Jesus' reaction. Rejection as king by the Jewish leaders that would seal his fate and lead to his death. But his death was not a diversion in his kingship and for his kingship. It was God's plan. His death was God's plan. The plan for the father was always for the son, Israel's king, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth by his death for sinners. The salvation Jesus would bring would be not one through outward victory, but through seeming defeat. The one who came into Jerusalem riding a donkey, presenting himself as Israel's king, would be the one who would not run from the cross, but he would set his face to the cross. This Jesus, the king of Israel, would not receive a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. For us. On the cross, they would hang a placard above him as a charge against him. Jesus, this is Jesus, King of the Jews, as a mockery of who he claimed to be. But there was nothing more true as our King hung on the cross for our sins to deliver us, not from the tyranny of an oppressive regime, but from the tyranny of our sin and Satan and death. There was our king in all his glory, in all his beauty. So the question every one of us is faced with today is this. Will I swear allegiance to Jesus as king? Or will I hold on to my power? Will I hold on to my control over my life? Will I hold on to my sins? We're faced with asking ourselves, will I receive him or will I refuse him? Friends, you will not always have the chance to make this decision. None of us are promised tomorrow. None of us are promised tomorrow. When your life is ended, or if Christ returns before our life is ended, that's it. There's no changing sides. Today is the day of salvation where Jesus is calling you to turn from your sin, to turn from your treason against God, 
to bow humbly before Jesus, receiving him as your king and calling on him to save you. And he will save you. He will forgive all of your treason against him. He will forgive all of the times that you have refused to bow the knee to him. And he will receive you both now and forever into his kingdom because he is a good and gracious king. And he's holding that out to you today to receive him as king and savior. Will you do that today? Faith Church, I want to challenge all of you who already know the kingship of Jesus with this. Let's not call Christ as king if we still live functionally as if we're the Lord of our own lives. It's an utter contradiction for a Christian to call Jesus as king, but then to refuse to do what the king commands and summons for us. So what is Christ your king calling you to give up for his sake? I I really don't need to give you a long list of sample sins because you already know what that is for you. You already know what Jesus is calling you to give up for his sake. So what do you want more? Your sin or Jesus? There is nothing worth keeping in this life if it keeps us from Jesus. So today, today would be so amazing and so worth it if we each gave up that one thing that we've to this point refused to give up to Christ because Jesus is worth it. He is king of that. He's Lord of that. Lay it down. Give it up. Surrender it to the king. Give him full control, whatever that is for you. So church, we have, we have holy week before us. Let's, let's meditate on God's word this week. Let's remember the cross. Let's remember the salvation that Jesus has accomplished us for us. And let's, let's remember our king. Let's remember our king going into Jerusalem. But let's remember our king traveling to the cross for our salvation. He is king over all, and there is no greater king. Let's pray. Christ, our king, take ownership and rule over every heart here today. For those who are resisting you as their king, turn their hearts to you. For those who know you as king, be Lord over everything in our lives. Oh God, I know it's, I'm sure it's in the hearts of your people, God. We, we desire for you to be Lord over all, but we are weak. But Lord Jesus, you are mighty and strong. Help us as we seek to as we seek for you to be Lord over all in our lives. It's by your grace that we ask this and for the glory of your name that we pray. Amen.